John, if maybe you're a little bit new to Bible study, there's some Bibles that are there in front of you. If you want to grab one, the passage will also be up on the screen. Uh, John's uh, the fourth book of the New Testament, so if you find your way uh, from the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible to the second, then the first four books are all named after the guys who wrote them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're in chapter six uh, of the Gospel of John. I, I want to wrap up a, a story uh, that we have been looking at now. This is going to be the third week, and, and so it's a really lengthy story in the Gospel of John about this miraculous meal that happens. And so I started a couple of weeks ago, and then last week you got uh, the best guest preacher that this church is ever going to have in the history of, of this church. It was my son, Chris. Yes. Um, he did a fantastic job. I wish he was here to hear that. He's actually out of town uh, at the moment. But thank you so much for all of your encouragement of a young guy who, is, uh, who has felt the call to ministry and is looking to educate himself and, and fulfill that call. Uh, obviously, it, it, was, uh, it was the best sermon I'd ever heard. So he continued on in the second part of this story where uh, at the beginning of, of John chapter 6, Jesus has this multitude of people, and, and he, he turns around and he asks his apostles, he asks the twelve disciples, what are, what are we going to do to feed all of these people? And, and of course, they don't know what it is that they're going to do, and when one of the apostles grabs this little kid, and he's got some loaves of bread, and he's got a couple of fish, and he said, well, you know, we got, we got this. And Jesus multiplies that food and miraculously feeds this entire crowd of people. Uh, I think it's a, it's a safe estimate to say if there were 5,000 men, there were probably at least 15,000 people altogether. Could have been even much more than that. And then the apostles that night get on a boat and they, they sail across the Sea of Galilee. And while they're in the middle of the sea, a giant storm comes up. And it says after they had rowed for three or four miles, which, whoo, come on. Uh, in the middle of a storm, here comes Jesus walking out on the water, and, and they're afraid. Uh, but when he announces that it's, it, hey, it's me, guys, you don't have to be afraid, and they welcome him onto the boat, immediately the boat is at the other side of the seashore. And so the apostles have witnessed a miracle for other people, the feeding of the multitude, and then they have experienced a miracle in their own life, and then last week, as, as uh, Chris picked up this story uh, there in verse 29 and 30, uh, we see in verse 29 of this passage that Jesus makes this pronouncement. He makes this incredible statement where He says, this is the work of God that you believe in the one He has sent. Now, when Jesus says something like that, we, gotta, we need to pay attention. He's saying, this is the work of God. We're asking all the time, what is it that we're supposed to do? What is the work of God? What am I supposed to be navigating through for what the will of God is for me, for us, for humanity? And Jesus tells us, here's the work of God. It is that you would believe in the one that He has sent, believe in Jesus. And, and, and the crowd as they had gathered over to the other side of the shore, and this is where Jesus says this to them, they're, they're still trying to figure out what is it that we're supposed to do with this miracle that we experienced. We had followed after Jesus because we were curious, 
But nowadays, we kind of have our own physical cravings going on. It is that we'd like full bellies again, and Jesus is trying to communicate to them through this grand statement that he makes, I am the bread of life, that there's a whole lot more than just the bread that fills your bellies when you, when you experience the miracle on the other side of the sea there. And so this is going to be the passage that, where we're going to finish up uh, this particular story. And so in just a moment, I'm going to begin in verse 41, and I'm going to read down through verse 59 to finish out this long story of Jesus interacting with this huge crowd of people. And so I want you to keep that in mind, that Jesus is not talking to three or four people. He's not talking to a couple of dozen people. He's talking to thousands and thousands of people that are trying to figure out who He is and, and what they're supposed to do with Him. It, all of this reminds me, as we think about Jesus' arrival on the earth, John, the Gospel of John, as we're going to take all of this time to slowly march our way through it, the, the arrival of Jesus, uh, we refer to it in kind of theological speak as the incarnation. That's the doctrinal term for God taking on flesh and becoming a man. And, and it seems improbable, it seems impossible, but that's what a, that's what a miracle is. Uh, this is what God does in miracles, is that He, do, he breaks the laws of nature, He, he breaks through into history, uh, the eternal comes into the temporary. And, and this great classic book that if you've never read it, I would challenge you to find a copy and, and pick it up. It's called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, the guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Lots of people have read that when they were kids or you've watched the movies. Uh, he was a philosopher, and he said this in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Don't you like that? I mean, the king has arrived, and he has called us to take part in his work of sabotaging everything that seems normal, everything that is human, all of the powers of this world. He has called us to be the rebels against everything, because really the only rebellion left is to, is to follow the king who is the rightful ruler. And that's what Jesus is calling for this great crowd of people to understand, is that he has come really to sabotage sabotage what it is that they thought that they wanted. Here in verse 41, John chapter 6, verse 41 through verse 59. Therefore, the Jews started complaining. Boy, we've seen this before in the, throughout the Bible. Then the Jews started complaining about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I've come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, Stop complaining among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And at that, the Jews argued among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate, and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. This is... If you've never heard this passage before, and if you had never heard anything from the Bible before, sounds weird. I mean, this is, this is the kind of thing that if this is the very first passage you read in the Scripture, you think, am, am I in the middle of a vampire chronicle here? Like, are these the sparkly vampires of the Twilight series, or is this the ugly vampire of Nosferatu? Like, is this the pretty vampire of Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt? Which, which, what are we doing here? I mean, this is, this is unusual territory. And yet, it is incredibly necessary for us to understand the role of what it is that Jesus wants to play in giving us life. And so I think it would probably be appropriate. Let's pause and ask God to open our minds and help us to have understanding here. Father, I thank you that in the middle of all of our mental wandering, uh, in, in the middle of all of our uh, trying to crave for the right thing and achieve the right stuff in life, that, that you're offering us an answer that is probably far beyond our understanding. And yet, here is Jesus trying to bring it right down to a gritty, earthly kind of description for us. I just pray that for those that are looking for life, that today they will find it. For those that have been maybe too happy in their sinful lives, that they will feel the sting of their need for grace, which is all of us. Uh, Lord, thank you that you are merciful and that you want to invite us into a relationship with you so that we can know your forgiveness. Help us to understand all that you have for us this morning in this passage. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let me just walk through some ideas that are born, I think, out of this passage. The first one is this, and that is that human, uh, humans have solutions to eternal problems. I mean, we come up with all sorts of human solutions to problems that by nature are not temporary. And, and this is what we do uh, when, when Jesus has to confront this group of people who have come to him because they had full bellies on one side of, of the lake, and so they came looking for him the next day because they still didn't have any food to the, you know, for themselves. They came looking to get their bellies filled again. And when he told them that full bellies are not the solution, but that he had a better solution, this group of people still keep continuing to try to solve their own problems. They keep arguing amongst themselves. They keep debating amongst themselves. 
and they put in all of their efforts to try to come up with the perfect solution. And the perfect solution that they come up with is this word manna. You see it reflected throughout this passage and the one before that they keep going back to this idea of manna. Now, if you're not you know, studious of the Bible, maybe the word manna doesn't have a whole lot of bearing for you. So let me quickly explain what that is. If you go back to the second book of the Bible, Exodus, what we find is that all of the Hebrew people are enslaved in, the, in Egypt. They are the slaves of the Egyptian empire. God sends a guy named Moses. There's a whole long story as to how to Moses gets to this point. He's 80 years old when God sends Moses before Pharaoh in order to t- command him to let all of the Hebrew people go because they are the chosen people of God through whom the Messiah is going to be born eventually. And so through a series of plagues and events, eventually the Pharaoh lets the people go, and they head out to the promised land. And as they are approaching the promised land, what scholars uh, kind of surmise is probably about a million Hebrew people, as they approach the, the promised land, they get afraid of the residents who are already there, and they won't go into the promised land. They refuse, they rebel God's, against God's command to go into the promised land. And so God then punishes them, and He says, you're going to wander in the, in the wilderness for 40 years, and, and then you'll, the people will be able to go into the promised land. But while you're in the wilderness, I'm still going to take care of you. And one of the ways that He took care of them was that every morning, six days a week when they would wake up, there was this heavenly bread on the ground. God miraculously made enough food appear on the ground for a million people for 40 years. This is what manna is. And so they would gather the food six days out of the week, and on the day before the Sabbath, they were allowed to gather a double portion so that they didn't have to do any work on the Sabbath day. And so they come up with these human solutions. You know, we're going to use the very best of our imagination to come up with a solution for our problem. And for them, the best use of their imagination, I mean, they put their imagination into overdrive. They put all of their creativity on the line as to what is it that we want Jesus to do for us? This guy that created this miracle on the other side of the sea that fed all of these thousands of people. Our bellies are empty. We're trying to figure out what he's trying to say. He keeps telling us that regular bread is not the answer. Oh, we know. Then what we want is that heavenly, miraculous bread that we heard about from a few thousand years ago. They had moved on from earthly bread, and they thought that their, their insight was going to be sufficient. But it's still very based on short-sighted cravings and on limited human knowledge. Whenever it is that you and I try to come up with a solution for God about the problem that we have in our life, chances are it's based on limited knowledge and human cravings. It's based on our belly and our brain, which you can't trust your belly, you shouldn't, and most of the times we can't really even trust our own thinking about our spiritual needs. And they put all of their effort into it, and this is what they come up with. Not a bad solution. Sounds like a pretty cool solution. I mean, let's go back to the miracle of of manna from a few thousand years ago. And Jesus is trying to communicate something to them that it's not what you need in the moment. You think what you need is just to have your appetite satisfied. 
What you think you need is a few more thousand calories, but what you actually need is something that is an eternal solution, not a human solution. And this is where I think Jesus presses us on in this passage, and He says that really there are these human demands that then we make to an eternal Savior. When we come up with our own solutions to eternal problems, then we start making demands to the God of the universe. When we think that we have got it all figured out, you know, okay, God, here I am, I got this problem at work, and I got this team that is really not working very well, and and Joe doesn't get along with Nancy, and Nancy doesn't get along with Bob, and Bob is constantly fighting with Jack, and Jack is, is just, well, he's Jack. I mean, what do we do with Jack? And, and all of these people are always fighting with each other, and so we come up with our own solutions. Well, we're going to go through an Enneagram test, or we're going to go through, we're going to figure out if you're, you know, if you're a Labrador, or if you're a, a lion, or if you're an otter, or a beaver personality. We're going to figure out this, this whole thing. We're going to come up with a human solution. When the reason that humans don't get along with each other is because we're sinful. Uh, it's because we're jacked up. It's because we're not rightly related with our Creator, which is why we fight with each other. Or we say in our own lives, I've got all of these bad habits, and I want to get rid of these bad habits, so I'm going to discipline myself, and I'm going to exercise in the mornings, and I'm going to eat the right amount of calories, and I'm going to stop looking at that, and I'm going to stop watching this, and I'm going to stop doing over here, and, and I am going to, I, I, you know, there's this phrase in the Bible where Paul says that we have to buffet our bodies. Now, we're Southern Baptists, so we like to say we like to buffet our bodies, but that's a whole nother sermon altogether. That's the spiritual gift of casseroling one another. Um, and so we're going we're gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get on lockdown with myself. I'm going to fix myself. And so we come up with a solution, and then we start making demands to God. God, I'm trying to eat better, so would you stop having people invite me to go to the shake pit? You know, God, I'm trying to do better, and I need to get up and exercise, so would you please stop making the electricity go off because of thunderstorms in Florida because I need my alarm to go off in the morning? And we start making demands to God. And, and here they are saying before Jesus that they know exactly what they want. Jesus, what we want is manna. You know, this is what we need. And so they complain and they doubt. You know, they're filled with doubts. They were like, we're not even sure that we can trust this guy because isn't this the Jesus that we know? Don't we know his father, Joseph? Don't we know his mom? Didn't he live and grow up over here in this other town? And their demands reveal the childishness and the selfishness of the human nature. It reveals our own sinfulness when, when we see their doubts and their complaining and their short-sightedness. And, and so it's a place in our own life where we need to be willing to assess our own complaints and our own doubts. You know, what is it that you find yourself complaining to God about? Not a full belly, not a big enough bank account, not enough people that you're connected with in the community. Maybe you feel lonely or estranged or stressed out. And maybe it is that you feel like you're not making the right decisions in life or you keep tripping into that same sin over and over again. What is it that you find yourself complaining about? Because what Jesus faced was this huge crowd of people consistently complaining that he wasn't doing what they wanted him to do. And meanwhile, Jesus is trying to give them something so much better, which leads me to 
This third idea. The thing you think is the problem is not the problem. If I may quote the great pirate philosopher, Captain Jack Sparrow, the problem is not the problem. The problem is your attitude toward the problem. Some of you need to Google that later because that was so much funnier than you gave me credit for. <laughs> See, our humanity and our ego refuses to see what the actual problem is. Our humanity and our ego focuses in on the fact of what it is that we don't have that we think we really want. Our humanity and our ego wants to define what the problem is. These people want to define the problem as we need more bread and fish. We have come all across the Sea of Galilee. We loaded up in boats. We brought our wives and our kids. We have found the miracle worker again, and we want another meal. And when Jesus tells them, you need something better than a normal meal, then they say, well, then give us that heavenly meal that Moses and the Hebrews that wandered in the desert had. And Jesus said, no, 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 that, that's not the meal you need either. You see, what we think is the problem is not actually the problem. The problem is not an empty belly problem. The issue is not that we lack stuff. And we don't have even a morality problem. The problem is not that we are immoral. We have a death problem. And the issue is that sin brings death. You see, we look at life and we think, I have a, a problem with lack, or I have a problem with morality and ethics. And the reality that Jesus is trying to drive this crowd to is that you don't have a problem with lacking stuff, and you don't have a problem with lacking doing good. You have a death problem because of sin in your life, and I have come to be the bread of life come down from heaven to solve the greatest problem that you have. This death problem is not something that is just here. Many of you know that we have a, a mission partnership that is over in the Middle East in the country of Jordan. Uh, there is an Iraqi pastor who works with a Jordanian Baptist church that is supported by a Brazilian mission that an American church uh, sends finances to. It's a really cool picture of the kingdom of heaven. And so through Pastor Omero, who is from Brazil, and Pastor Izat, who is, from, who is a refugee from Iraq, they have partnered together to get back into Iraq to continue to do gospel work. And I want to show you this little four-minute video that is a picture of what the real problem of humanity is all about. Watch this with me.
Graça e a paz, eu estou aqui na cidade de Mossul, no lado mais destruído da cidade, e logo atrás de mim você vai ver aqui o que era a Igreja Presbiteriana de Mossul. Essa foi a primeira igreja evangélica da cidade de Mossul, e queridos irmãos, em 2006 o pastor dessa igreja, chamado Munther, de 69 anos de idade, foi assassinado depois de ter sido sequestrado e ter é. permanecido por três dias é, debaixo do sequestro. É, essa igreja foi fechada a, alguns dias depois do assassinato desse pastor, porque o presbítero que assumiu a igreja também foi ameaçado de morte. Nós nem sabíamos da existência dessa igreja, então a igreja que nós estamos começando não é a primeira igreja evangélica dessa região. A primeira igreja é essa que vocês veem aqui. Havia uma cruz aqui em cima e a porta da igreja foi fechada. Então não tem como nem acessar a parte interna, porque o Estado Islâmico usou essa propriedade de toda essa região, como vocês podem ver, completamente é, destruída. Mas a gente acabou por descobrir a história dessa igreja que remonta à história do cristianismo no Iraque. Né? Em 1850, os missionários presbiterianos vieram para Mossul e começaram a plantar junto com os congregacionais a igreja evangélica é, aqui no Iraque. Então essa igreja aqui que vocês veem é fruto desse trabalho árduo de missionários aqui desde 1850, então a nossa igreja não é a primeira, a nossa primeira é a primeira igreja evangélica nos arredores de Mossul, mas dentro da cidade de Mossul, essa é a primeira igreja evangélica, então vamos orar, não existem cristãos morando hoje nessa região, evidentemente completamente destruída, e temos que interceder e orar para que Deus é, faça com que a igreja no Iraque possa crescer, prosperar e avançar, então essa é, é, o, é o que era a igreja evangélica, é a primeira igreja evangélica do Iraque e é uma igreja presbiteriana. There's not enough fish and bread in the world to solve the ills of the human heart. And the, the reason that there is such destruction, there's such war, there's such hatred, animosity, anger, selfishness, is not because people don't have enough food uh, lying about. It is because of the brokenness of the human heart. And, and Pastor Omero that you saw there, he's, he's from Brazil. He's there in Mosul, Iraq, where now more international, this mission partners of ours, they have, have reestablished work of an evangelical church there in the city of Mosul, Iraq, a place that we just think about as a, a place where soldiers go in and shoot guns and drop bombs and people are constantly engaged in warfare. It is that they don't just need more supplies. They need a spiritual revolution of the heart. 
Jesus wants to deliver not just stuff, He wants to deliver Himself. It's why He says there in verse 53, this kind of radical statement, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you do not have life in yourselves. This is the natural inclination of man is to move toward destruction when we don't eat of the flesh and drink of the blood of Jesus. Now, obviously, he's speaking metaphorically here of consuming a relationship with Jesus, of being consumed into a relationship with Jesus, which brings me to just one last statement that I'll put on the screen for you. The solution to our greatest and most urgent need is found in the eternal and present Savior. It is not that Jesus has hid Himself up in the constellations of the universe. It is not that Jesus is quarantined away somewhere in the throne room of heaven. It is that He has become the eternal Savior, has become the present Savior. He has come to earth so that we might know of our need for Him and what it is that He is providing for us. The crowd kept looking for a solution to the wrong problem. They wanted bread. They wanted supplies. They wanted, you know, in places like this, it's, uh, what they want is rebuilding efforts. But what Jesus wants to do is come and radically transform the hearts of everyone from the Muslims that are in the Middle East to the Hindus that are in India to the atheists that are in China to the radically unchurched that are in Manatee County, Florida. And I would submit before you that we have a very radically unchurched community that is in need of the gospel here as we simultaneously take it there to places like Stapleton, Colorado, and to Mosul, Iraq. People want bread, and when they figure out that they need something better than bread, then suddenly they say, well, give us the heavenly bread. And meanwhile, Jesus is standing there saying, but I'm going to give you myself that I am the bread of life, and then we don't know what to do with that. Because we're so busy with our cravings and our curiosities. We're so busy with our physical cravings and with our spiritual curiosities that we're not willing to accept the eternal Christ who is before us. And we look for these temporary solutions to the wrong problems when the eternal answer is given for our greatest need. Jesus is offering Himself as the very best solution to every problem that you have. He has given His body and His blood so that we can live. And sometimes we, we fall short of this. And, and when I say we, I mean kind of the fraternity of pastors that I uh, get to be a part of. And, and I was challenged this past week by uh, another pastor uh, that I saw quoted online. His name is Francis Chan, guy from the West Coast. And Francis, who is known as a guy who calls people to a whole nother level of involvement in faith in the kingdom of God, Francis said about himself, Jesus calls people to a level of commitment that I'm afraid to call people to. And the reason is because it is so radical and revolutionary. I mean, we look at a life like Omero, who's driving a car around the worst part of Mosul, Iraq, that a lot of us would say that's the worst town on the face of the planet, and what do we think? What is that guy doing there? Yeah, go home to your mama. Like, what are you doing there? And yet, this is the level 
that Jesus has called us to of total abandonment of self to stop being worried if the neighbors are going to think you're weird if you witness to them, to stop worrying about whether or not people are going to think your house is neat or nice if you invite them over for dinner so that you can befriend the people that are in your community so you can get to know them so that you can share life with them. Stop worrying about everything else in life because Jesus has offered himself to us as the greatest solution to our greatest need rather than the temporary solutions to our temporary needs. And to know Jesus is to inherit the eternal life by the sacrifice that he makes. He says, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. He says, this is the true food. This is the true drink. He says, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, I know that we can get hung up on what feels like, you know, metaphors and allegories that are a little uncomfortable about flesh and blood, but Jesus is giving us His life. The eternal God of the universe has died on a cross so that we might have life. He has risen from the dead so that we might have forgiveness and the covering of our sins. And so for everybody in the room who's already a Christian and you've trusted in that fact, of Jesus' resurrection and confessed Him as Lord, what it means is it's calling you to a more radical form of living where you stop worrying about the temporary satisfaction of your belly and the spiritual curiosities of your mind and that you engage fully in the mission of God because there are still a few billion people on the planet and there's a couple of hundred thousand people in our own county that don't know about Jesus yet. And for those of you that are here today that maybe you're hearing this fresh and new for the first time, that this is the kind of radical sacrifice that God makes for me, that He gives His flesh, that He, is, that he gives His lifeblood, that He dies in the place of my sin. This is your opportunity to say yes to a relationship with God where you put your faith in Jesus, because He is offering Himself as the real solution to your real problem, not the fake solutions to your pretend problems. This is eternity. And I want to invite you to it. Let's pray together.